Thanks for tuning into the podcast. Before we start the show, I want to let you know something. My latest novel, Personal Fable, is free for the next uh, few days. So if you're hearing this ad, it's currently free if you're a Kindle user. So just look it up on your Kindle. If you don't have a Kindle, you can even get one of those for free by getting the free Kindle app on your phone. And then head over, get Personal Fable, have a read, and if you love it, leave a review. And I hope you love the story. Now, let's get on with the podcast. P.S. The promotion runs the 11th, 12th and 13th of March. Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast. Talking about Chapter 7 and Chapter 8. Yesterday went blasting through and did uh, two chapters. Although, now that I look, there's no comments. So, there's two chapters down, zero comments included. That's okay, though. We will just continue. Uh, we must be up to chapter nine now. Let's have a little quick look at chapter nine. Oh, yeah, there we go. Okay. So, I'll do a pretty short reading tonight. Uh, let people catch up a bit after yesterday's double reading, especially considering there's no comments done. Um, I feel like, you know, maybe that's a too fast pace. I um, kind of try to settle to about a one chapter per day pace. I reckon that, that'll, that'll be good to see us through this thing. Chapter 9. Edward, I said, if the Irish language is to be revived, something in the way of reading must be provided for the people. Haven't they Hyde's folk tales? Yes, and these were well enough in their way, but a work is what is needed, a book. Edward thought that as soon as the Irish people had learnt their language, somebody would be sure to write a national work. There's plenty of talent about. But, my dear friend, there isn't sufficient application. You are quite right. And we talked of atmosphere and literary tradition, neither of which we had, nor could we have for a hundred years, and therefore are without hope of an original work in the Irish language, but we can get a translation of a masterpiece. We want a book, and can't go on any further without one. I hear everybody complaining that when we, that when he has learnt Irish, there is nothing for him to read. But do you think they would deign to read a translation? Edward answered, laughing, and he agreed with me that outside of folklore, there is no art except that which comes of great culture. A translation of a worldwide masterpiece is what we want, and we have to decide on the work before we reach Athlone. Why Athlone? Athlone? Athlone or Mullingar? Now, Edward, you are to give your whole mind to the question. Nothing English, he said resolutely. Something continental, some great continental work. His eyes became fixed, and I saw that he was thinking. Talimek, he said at last. Telemach would be quite safe, but aren't you afraid that it is a little tedious? Gilblast. I never read Gilbias, but you have you heard many people say that they couldn't get through it? What do you think of Don Quixote? It comes from a great Catholic country, and it was written by a Catholic, and until we remembered the story of the curious impertinent and the other stories interwoven into the narrative, Don Quixote seemed to be the very thing we needed. We want short stories, I said, a selection of tales from Maupassant. A Gaelic league might object. 
It certainly would if my name were mentioned. I've got it, Edward. The Arabian Nights. There are no stories that people would read so readily. Edward was inclined to agree with me, and before we reached Dublin, it was arranged that he should give £50 and I five and twenty towards the publication of Tate O'Donoghue's translation. If more is wanted, Edward said, they can have it. But remember one thing, it must be sanctioned by the Gaelic League and published under its auspices. As you well know, my interests are in public life. I have no private life. Oh, yes, you have, Edward. I'm your private life. Edward snorted and took refuge in his joke, mon ami more, but... This time he showed himself trustworthy. He wrote to the Freeman's Journal, disclosing our project and winding up his letter with an expression of belief that the entire cost of the work could not be much more than £150, and that he was quite sure there were many who would like to help. Many were willing to help us with advice. The Freeman's Journal came out next day full of letters signed by various Dublin literati, Approving of the project, but suggesting a different book for translation, one writer thought that Plutarch's lives would supply the people with a certain culture, which he ventured to say he was was needed in the country. Another was disposed to look favourably upon a translation of St. Thomas Aquinas. Another proposed Caesar's commentaries, and the debate was continued until the trust, the truth leaked out that the proposed translation of the Arabian Nights was due to my suggestion. Then, of course, all the fat was in the fire. Sacerdos contributed a column and a half, which may be reduced to this sentence. Mr George Moore has selected the Arabian Nights because he wishes an indecent book to be put into the hands of every Irish peasant. We do not take our ideas of love from Mohammedan countries. We are a pure race. The paper slipped from my hand and I lay back in my chair overwhelmed, presenting a very mournful spectacle to anyone coming into the room. How long I lay inert I don't know, but I remember staring, starting out of my chair, crying, I must go and see Edward. Well, George, you see, you've got the reputation for a certain kind of writing and you can't blame the priests if... Edward, Edward... After all, it is their business to watch over their flocks and to see that none is corrupted. Ba 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 ba. Mon ami more, mon ami more. You'll drive me mad, Edward, if you continue that idiotic joke any longer. The matter is a serious one. I came over to Ireland. You have no patience. No patience, I cried, looking at the great man. He is the Irish Catholic people, I said, and later in the afternoon my disappointment caused me to doze away in front of my beautiful grey Manet, my exquisite Mauve Monet, and my sad Pissarro. The Irish are cantankerous, hateful race, I muttered on awaking, and the mood of hate endured for some days, myself continually asking myself why I had ventured back to Ireland. But at the end of the week, a new plan for the regeneration of the Irish race came into my head. It seemed a good thing for me to write a volume of short stories dealing with peasant life, and these would be saved from the criticism of Sacerdos and his clan if they were first published in a clerical review. One can only get the better of the clergy by setting the clergy against the clergy. In that way, Louis XV ridded France of the Jesus and obtained possession of all their property. And, in Ireland, 
no more than in France, are the Jesuits on the best of terms with the secular clergy, they might be inclined to take me up. My hopes in this direction were not altogether unwarranted. I had read a paper when I came over to Ireland from the performance of the bending of the bow on the necessity of the revival of the Irish language, for literary as well as for national reasons, at a public luncheon given by the Irish Literary Society, and a few days after the reading of this paper, a neighbour of mine in Mayo wrote to me saying that a friend of hers desired to make my acquaintance. It was natural to suppose that it could not be anyone but some tiresome woman, and up went my nose. No, it isn't a woman, it is a priest. My nose went up still higher, Father Finlay, she said, and I was at once overjoyed, for I had long desired to make Father Tom's acquaintance. But it was not to Father Tom, but to his brother Peter, that she proposed to introduce me, a much superior person, she said, a man of great learning, who has lived in Rome many years and speaks Latin. As well as he should be able to speak Irish, I clamoured. You will like him much better than the agriculturist, she answered earnestly. I did not seem at all... It did not seem at all sure to me that she was right, but, not wishing to lose a chance of winning friends for the Irish language, I accompanied her somewhat reluctantly to the Jesuit College of Milltown. A curious and absurd little meeting it was, myself producing all my arguments, trying to convince the Jesuit with them, and the Jesuit taking up a different position, and the lady listening to our wearisome talk, with long patience. At last it struck me that Dante must be boring her prodigiously, and getting up I go to go, I spoke about trains. Father Peter accompanied us to the college gate, and on the way there he asked me if I would give the paper that I had read at the luncheon for publication in their review. But I thought your brother was the editor. He is, Peter answered, but that doesn't make any difference. As I did not know Tom, the paper went to Peter, and it was published in the New Island Review. My contribution did not, however, seem to bring me any nearer Father Tom. He did not write to me about it, nor did he write asking me to contribute again, and when I came to live in Dublin, though I heard everybody speaking of him, no one offered to introduce us, not even Peter, whom I often met in the streets and once in the house, where the young lady who had introduced us lodged. No one seemed willing to undertake the risk of introducing me to Tom, and the mystery so heightened my desire of Tom's acquaintance that one day I invited Peter to walk around Stephen's Green with me, in the hope that he might say, let's call Tom. Let's call on Tom. But at every step, my aversion from Peter increased without ever prompting the thought that I might dislike Tom equally. Peter Finlay is not an attractive name. There seems to be a little snivel in it, but Tom is a fine, robust name, and it goes well with Finlay. And all that I had heard about him and excited my, had excited my curiosity, my friends were his friends, and they spoke of him as of a cryptogram which nobody could decipher, and this had set me wondering if I should succeed where others had failed, till at last the ridiculous superstition glided into my mind that Father Tom looked upon me as a dangerous person, one to be avoided, which was tantamount to the belief that Father Tom lacked courage, that he was afraid of me, as absurd as 
as absurd a thought as ever strayed into a man's head, but human nature is such that we seek an explanation in every accident. One day A.E. stopped to speak to somebody in Marion Street, turning suddenly. He said, let me introduce you to Father Tom Finlay. I felt a look of pleasure come into my face, and I knew myself at once to be in sympathy with his long-bodied man, fleshy everywhere hands, paunch, calves, thighs, forearm and neck. I liked the russet-coloured face, withered like an apple. The small, bright, affectionate eyes, the insignificant nose, the short grey hair. I liked his speech, simple, direct and intimate, and his rough clothes. I was whirled away into admiration of Father Tom. And for the next few days, thought of nothing but when I should see him again. A few days later, seeing him coming towards me, hurrying along on his short legs, one cannot imagine Father Tom strolling, I tried to summon courage to speak to him. He passed, saluting me, lifting his hat with a smile in his little eyes, a smile which passed rapidly. One sees that his salute and his smile are a mere formality, so I nearly let him pass me, but summoning all my courage. At the last moment I called to him, and he stopped at once, like one ready to render a service to whoever required one. I thought of writing to you, Father Tom, about a matter which has been troubling me, but refrained on consideration. It seemed too absurd. Father Tom waited for me to continue, but my courage forsook me suddenly, and I began to speak about other things. Father Tom listened to Gaelic League propaganda with kindness and deference, and it was not till I was about to bid him goodbye that he said, But what was the matter to which you alluded in the beginning of our conversation? You said you wished to consult me upon something. Well, it is so stupid that I am afraid to tell you. I shall be glad if you will tell me, he answered, taking me into his confidence, and I told him that I had been down at the Freeman office to ask the editor if he would publish a letter from me. But, Father Tom, what I am going to say is absurd. Father Tom smiled encouragingly. His smile seemed to say nothing you can say is absurd. Well, it doesn't seem to me that people are dancing enough in Ireland. You mean there isn't enough amusement in Ireland? I quite agree with you. It's a relief to find oneself in agreement with somebody, especially with you, Father Tom. Father Tom smiled amiably, and then becoming suddenly serious, I said, Ever since I've been here, I find myself up against somebody or something, and I told him about the touring company, admitting that perhaps the League did not find itself justified in incurring any further expenses, but our project for the Arabian Nights translation could anything be more inoffensive. Yet the Freeman, what is one to do? Um, let's pause there. What is one to do on that note? Um, and we'll find out Father Tom's advice tomorrow. Thanks very much for listening. See you tomorrow.